welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 398. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Jokes and punchlines on this week's show. You know, one of the many things Drabblecast has always tried to do, aside from, you know, ask you to donate and tell a friend and not commit mass genocide and not crap your pants in a bad way, is to make you laugh. I think that's natural for a weird fiction podcast, since most things that we find funny are, at their core, weird or out of the ordinary. I remember one time going through a Taco Bell drive-thru and opening my bag to find a banana along with my order. A perfectly ripe, perfectly fine banana. You don't always have to laugh out loud to find something funny. Sometimes it takes the form of sincere confusion for a second or two. Either way, it makes a moment for you that you'll never forget because something different happened. And if you're listening out there, Taco Bell employee, you have my thanks. Our story this week explores some of that idea, along with other stuff. But first, a hundred word story. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, and they're the name of the game around here. Little appetizers before your main story. This week's comes to you by Swomi Nona, and it's called Estrangement Counseling. was pulled off our forums at forums.drabblecast.org, where we pick our weekly drabbles. Give it a shot there in the Drabblecast section. We might pick yours for next week. And here we go. Estrangement Counseling by Swomi Nona. I sat on the couch, trying not to touch it. The abomination was speaking in my wife's voice. It's like he doesn't even recognize me anymore. Every time I try to hug him, he pulls away. Look at him now, he's, he's practically falling off the couch to avoid sitting next to me. A sob broke through the tentacles surrounding its fanged mouth, each tentacle rising into the air, then settling back down over its black lips. The monstrosity with feathers looked towards me and spoke through its many mouths. Do you have anything you want to say to your wife? Oof, there's some pain behind that one, maybe. Our story this week is called The Day After the Day the Martians Came by Frederick Pohl. Frederick Pohl was born in 1919, died in 2013, was an American science fiction writer, editor, and great, with a career spanning more than 75 years, from his first published work, the 1937 poem Elegy to a Dead Satellite, Luna, to the 2011 novel All the Lives He Led. Now that's commitment, folks. From about 1959 to 1969, Pohl edited the award-winning Galaxy magazine. His 1977 novel Gateway won four years' best novels, including the Hugo, the Locus, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, which, folks, is more than just a hat trick. There's not even a word for it. He won the frickin' U.S. National Book Award in 74, the John W. Campbell Award again in 84, and in 1993, the Science Fiction Writers of America named Pohl the 12th recipient of the Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster Award, and later inducted him to the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. 
So he's, you know, he's doing pretty good. He's not always a household name though, like Asimov, Bradbury, etc. But he deserves to be. And that's why you're hearing this great story today on the Travelcast. That, and more specifically, because one of our amazing editors, Sandra O'Dell, totally hooked us up and recommended. The story was first published in Harlan Ellison's Dangerous Visions. Cool side note, there used to be a comic book back in the 70s called Worlds Unknown, edited by the great Roy Thomas, that adapted major SF short stories into comic book form specifically for adults. Truly something before its time, since comics are so big now and accepted in broader communities, not just 12-year-olds and future norms smacking bubblegum. Sadly, it didn't fly very long back then, but if you're lucky, you can still find issues pop up for sale on Amazon and elsewhere, and I'd encourage you to always keep a watchful eye out. These are true gems. Ralph Reese's art is phenomenal, and in addition to Frederick Pohl's stories like this one, they ran fantastic SF stories that I bought and ran on a skate pod back when I was the editor over there. Stories like L. Sprague de Camp's 1956 A Gun for Dinosaur, and Frederick Brown's 1944 Arena, which was later adapted for an episode of the TV series Star Trek. I mean, where else do you think I came across those things? I'm a big fan of the oldest, most farthest back in the aisles comics and books in that old, musty-used bookstore in town. I'm an even bigger fan of giving the best, most forgotten stories I can find in those tomes new life on the internet and in podcast form, like you're about to hear now. You can find images of our story this week in comic book form on our website, drabblecast.org. It's worth checking out. So. Without further ado, we bring you The Day After the Day the Martians Came by Frederick Pohl. There were two cots in every room of the motel, besides the usual number of beds, and Mr. Mandala, the manager, had converted the rear section of the lobby into a men's dormitory. Nevertheless, he was not satisfied and was trying to persuade his colored bellmen to clear out the trunk room and put cots in that too. Now please, Mr. Mandala, the bell captain said, speaking loudly over the noise in the lounge, you know we'd do it for you if we could, but we cannot, because first, we don't have any other place to put those old TV sets you want to save, and second, we don't have any more cots. You're arguing with me, Ernest. I told you to quit arguing with me, said Mr. Mandala. He drummed his fingers on the registration desk and looked angrily around the lobby. There were at least 40 people in it, talking, playing cards, and dozing. The television set was mumbling away in a recap of the NASA releases, and on the screen Mr. Mandala could see a picture of one of the Martians gazing into the camera and weeping large, gelatinous tears. Dude, quit that, ordered Mr. Mandala, turning in time to catch his bellman looking at the screen. I don't pay you to watch TV. Go see if you can help out in the kitchen. We've been in the kitchen, Mr. Mandala. They don't need us. Go where I tell you to, Ernest. You too, Bersie. He watched them go through the service hall and wished he could get rid of some of the crowd in the lounge as easily. 
They filled every seat, and the overflow sat on the arms of the chairs, leaned against the walls, and filled the booths in the bar, which had been closed for the past two hours because of the law. According to the registration slips, they were nearly all from newspapers, wire services, radio and television networks, and so on, waiting to go to the morning briefing at Cape Kennedy. Mr. Mandala wished morning would come. He didn't like so many of them cluttering up his lounge, especially since he was pretty sure a lot of them were not even registered guests. On the television screen, a hastily edited tape was now showing the return of the Alonquin 9 space probe from Mars, but no one was watching it. It was the third time that particular tape had been repeated since midnight, and everybody had seen it at least once. But when it changed to another shot of one of the Martians, looking like a sad dachshund with elongated seal flippers for limbs, one of the poker players stirred and cried, Hey, I got a Martian joke. What's worse than a Martian trying to fly a spaceship? It's your bet, said the dealer. Ugh, a Martian trying to park one, said the reporter, folding his cards. No one laughed, not even Mr. Mandala, although some of the jokes had been pretty good. Everybody was beginning to get tired of them, though, or perhaps just tired. Mr. Mandala had missed the first excitement about the Martians because he'd been asleep. When the day manager phoned him about it, waking him up, Mr. Mandala had thought first that it was a joke, and second, that the day manager was out of his mind. After all, who would care if the Mars probe had come back with some kind of animals? Or even if they weren't animals, exactly. When he found out how many reservations were coming in over the teletype, he realized that some people did, in fact, care. However, Mr. Mandala didn't take much interest in things like that. It was nice the Martians had come, since they'd filled his hotel, and every other hotel within a hundred miles of Cape Kennedy, but that was nearly everything about the Martians that mattered to Mr. Mandala. On the television screen, the picture went to black and was replaced by the legend bulletin from NBC News. The poker game paused momentarily. The lounge was almost quiet as an invisible announcer read a new release from NASA. Dr. Hugo Batch, the Fort Worth, Texas veterinarian who arrived late this evening to examine the Martians at the Patrick Air Force Base, has issued a preliminary report which has just been released by Colonel Eric T. Happy Wingator, speaking for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. A wire service man yelled, Hey, turn it up! There was a convulsive moment around the set. The sound vanished entirely for a moment, then blasted out. Martians are vertebrate, warm-blooded, and apparently mammalian. A superficial examination indicates a generally low level of metabolism, although it's possible that this is in some measure the result of their difficult and confined voyage through 137 million miles of space. In the specimen chamber, of course, of the Algonquin 9 spacecraft, there is no, repeat, no evidence of communicable disease in the creatures, although standing sterilization precautions are, well, hell, he says, cried somebody, probably a stringer from CBS. Walter Cronkite had an interview with the Mayo Clinic that, shut up, bellowed a dozen voices, and the TV became audible again. Completes the full text of this report by Dr. Hugo Batch, as released at this hour by Colonel Wingerter. There was a pause, then the announcer's voice, weary but willing, found its place and went on with a recap of the previous half-dozen stories.
The poker game began again as the announcer was describing the new conference with Dr. Sam Sullivan of the Linguistic Institute of the University of Indiana, and his conclusions that the sounds made by the Martians were indeed some sort of a language. What nonsense, thought Mr. Mandala, drugged and drowsy. He pulled a stool over and sat down, half asleep. Then the noise of laughter woke him, and he straightened up belligerently. He tapped his call bell for attention. Ladies, gentlemen, please, he cried. It's four o'clock in the morning. Our other guests are trying to sleep. Yeah, sure, said the CBS man, holding up one hand impatiently. But wait a minute, I, I got one. What do you call a Martian high-rise? <laughs> you give up? Uh, go ahead, what, said a red-haired girl, a staffer. Twenty-seven floors of basement apartments. The girl said, Okay, well, I've got one too. What's a Martian female's religious injunction requiring her to keep her eyes closed during intercourse? She waited a beat. God forbid she see her husband having a good time. Ugh, are we playing poker or not? groaned one of the players, but they were too many for him. Hey, I got one. Who won the Martian beauty contest? <laughs> Nobody won. <laughs> hey, how do you get a Martian woman to give up sex? You marry her. Mr. Mandela did laugh out loud at that one, and when one of the reporters came to him and asked for a book of matches, he gave it to him. Ta, said the man, puffing his pipe aloud. Long nights, huh? You bet, said Mr. Mandala genially. On the television screen, the tape was running again for the fourth time. Mr. Mandala yawned, staring vacantly at it. It was not much to see, but really, it was all that anyone had seen or was likely to see of the Martians. All these reporters and cameramen and columnists and sound men, thought Mr. Mandala with pleasure. All of them waiting here for the 10 a.m. briefing at the Cape would have had a 40-mile drive through the Palmetto Swamps for nothing. Because what they would see when they got there, he knew, would be just about what they were seeing now. One of the poker players was telling a long, involved joke about Martians wearing fur coats at Miami Beach. Mr. Mandala looked at them with dislike. If only some of them would go to their rooms and go to sleep, he might try asking the others if they were registered guests even at the motel. Although, actually, he couldn't squeeze anyone else in anyway, with all the rooms doubly occupied already. He gave up the thought and stared vacantly at the Martians on the screen, trying to imagine people all over the world looking at that picture on their television sets, reading about them in the newspapers, caring about them. They did not look worth caring about, as they sluggishly crawled about on their long, weak limbs, like stretched seals' flippers gasping heavily in the drag of Earth's gravity, their great, long eyes so very dull. "'Stupid-looking bastards,' one of the reporters said to the pipe-smoker. "'You know what I heard? I heard the reason the astronauts kept them locked in the back was the stank.' Yes, well, they probably didn't notice it on Mars, said the pipe smoker judiciously. Thin air and all. Notice it? <laughs> they love it. He dropped a dollar bill on the desk in front of Mr. Mandala. Hey, can I have change for the Coke machine? Mr. Mandala counted out dimes silently. It had not occurred to him that the Martians would smell, but that was only because he hadn't given it much of a thought. If he had thought about it at all, that was surely something he would have thought about.
Mr. Mandala finished out a dime for himself and followed the two men over to the Coke machine. The picture on the TV changed to some rather poorly photographed shots brought back by the astronauts of low, irregular, sand-colored buildings on a bright sand floor. They were what NASA was calling the largest Martian city, although about a hundred of the flat, windowless structures existed. Yeah, I don't know, said the second reporter at last, tilting his Coke bottle. You'd think they're what you call intelligent well, it's difficult to say, said the pipe smoker. He was from Reuters and looked it with a red, broad, English squire's face. I mean, they do build houses, he pointed out. Yeah, well, so do hermit crabs. Well, no doubt, no doubt, the Reuters man brightened. Oh, just a moment. Th that makes me think of one. Th there was once, let me see, at home we, we tell it about an Irishman. Yes, I think I have it. So the next spaceship goes to Mars, you see, and, and, and they find that they have some dread terrestrial disease that's wiped out the whole race, all but, all but a single female. These fellows, too, on the screen are all gone. All gone except this one Martian woman. Well, they're all terribly upset, and they debate it at the UN and start an anti-genocide pact, and, you know, America votes $200 billion for reparations and all that. And long and short of it is, in order to keep the race from dying out entirely, they decide to breed a human man to this one surviving Martian female. Well, Jiminy. Yes, exactly, Jiminy. Well, that's when they find old Paddy O'Shaughnessy, down on his luck, you see, and they say to him, Here, just go in that cage there, Paddy, and you'll, you'll find this Martian lass, you know, and all that you've got to do is render her pregnant, see? And O'Shaughnessy says, Well, what's in it for me? And they offer him, oh, a thousand pounds. And of course he agrees, but then he opens the door of the cage and he sees what the female looks like and he, he backs right on out of there. The Reuters man replaced his empty Coke bottle in the rack and grimaced, portraying Patty's expression of revulsion. He continues, Holy saints, he says, oh, but I never counted on anything like this. Thousands of pounds, Paddy, they say to him, urging him on. Ah, very well then, he says, but on one condition. And what might that be, they ask him. Well, you've got to promise me, he says, that the children, the children will be raised Catholic. Yeah, I heard that one said the other reporter, and he moved to put his bottle back, and as he did, his foot caught in the rack and four cases of empty Coke bottles bounced and clattered across the floor. Well, that was just about more than Mr. Mandala could stand, and he gasped, stuttered, dinged his bell, and shouted, Ernest, Bursey, on the double! And when Ernest showed up, poking his dark, plum-colored head out of the service door with an expression that revealed an anticipation of disaster, Mr. Mandala shouted, Oh, curse your thick heads. I told you a hundred times, keep those racks cleaned out. And he stood over the two bellmen, fuming, as they bent to the litter of bottles and broken glass, their faces glancing up at him sideways. He knew that all the reporters were looking at him, and that they disapproved. He went out into the late night to cool off, because he was sorry, and he knew he might make himself sorrier still. 
The grass was wet. Condensing dew was dripping from the fittings of the diving board into the pool. The motel was not as quiet as it should have been so close to dawn, but it was quiet enough. There was only an occasional distant laugh and the noise from the lounge. To Mr. Mandala, it was reassuring. He replenished his soul by walking all the galleries around the motel, checking the ice makers and the cigarette machines, and finding that all was well. A military jet from McCoy was screaming overhead. Beyond it, the stars were still bright in spite of the beginnings of dawn in the east. Mr. Mandala yawned, glanced mildly up, and wondered which of them was Mars, and returned to his desk, and shortly he was too busy with the long, exhausting round of room calls, checkouts, and such forth to even think about the Martians. Then, when most of the guests were getting noisily into their cars and their limos and buses and the day men were coming on, Mr. Mandala uncapped two cold cokes and carried one back through the service door to Ernest. Rough night, he said, and Ernest, accepting both the coke and the intention, nodded and drank it down. They leaned against the wall that screened the pool from the access road and watched the newsmen and newsgirls taking off down the road toward the highway and the ten o'clock briefing. Most of them had had no sleep. Mr. Mandala shook his head, disapproving so much commotion for so little cause. And then Ernest snapped his fingers and grinned. Hey, I got a Martian joke, Mr. Mandala. What do you call a seven-foot Martian when he's coming at you with a spear? Oh, bloody hell, Ernest, said Mr. Mandala. You call him sir. Everybody knows that one. He yawned and stretched and said reflectively, You'd think there'd be some new jokes. All I heard were the old ones, only instead of picking on the Jews and the Catholics and, well, everybody, they were telling them about the Martians. Yeah, I noticed that, Mr. Mandala, said Ernest. Mr. Mandala stood up. Well, better get some sleep, he advised, because they might all be back again tonight. I don't know what for. You know what I think, Ernest? Outside of the jokes, I don't think that six months from now anybody's going to even remember there were such things as Martians. Never at all. I don't believe their having come here will wind up well, making a nickel's worth of difference to anybody, when all is said and done. I hate to disagree with you, Mr. Mandala, said Ernest mildly, but I don't think so. Going to make a difference to some people, gonna make a damn big difference to me. All right, Ernest, said Mr. Mandala, but I have heard that one before, too. Afterward by Frederick Pohl It is and remains my conviction that a story has to speak for itself, and that any words a writer adds to it after he's finished telling it are a cop-out, a lie, or a mistake. But there is one thing that I would like to say about the reason this story was written. Not to persuade you that it is a good reason, or that the story accomplishes its purpose, you have already made your mind up on those things, as indeed you should have, but to tell you how faithfully nature holds the mirror up to art. 
Between the time I wrote, the day after the day the Martians came, and now, I met a minister from a small town in Alabama. Like many churches, not only in Alabama, his is torn on the question of integration. He's found a way, he thinks, to solve it, or to at least ameliorate it among the white teenagers in his congregation. He's encouraging them to read science fiction in the hope that they may learn, first, to worry about green-skinned Martians instead of black-skinned Americans, and second, that all men are brothers, at least in the face of a very large universe which is very likely to contain creatures who are not men at all. I like the way this man serves his god. It's a good scheme. It ought to work. It better work, or God help us all. Good stuff. Yeah, you know, after restarting the Drabblecast in 2018 from just a year earlier, 2017, I'm more conscientious of the jokes I tell. I still pray at the end of every episode, of course, that I didn't say something that will send droves of one community or another after me coming for blood, but in the end, I guess I still sleep well at night, mixed with, you know, not so much that. I guess I do look at comedy a little bit different now, though. I still think you need to push boundaries. I still think it's okay to step on toes and be absurd and maybe even offensive sometimes. It's okay to be challenged by things, you know? To feel a little reactive. Hell, this story's a great example of how bad comedy can get when it doesn't explore new territory, when it isn't allowed or interested in being creative and exploring new things, even if that sometimes means winning some sets and losing some others. Everybody loves to laugh, though, don't they? From Mother Teresa to Jeffrey Dahmer. We all have that in common. At the same time, though, this story holds a critical mirror up to comedy and society, because that's what comedy and society should always be doing to itself. It's extreme. It's absurd. It's the opposite of what reality is or should be. And in that regard, underneath the laughter, there's consensus that something in the realm of the opposite to that joke, that's what we really agree is normal and ideal. A chimney didn't sit on a bar and not say anything because it was inanimate. A chimney walked into a bar and said, this one's on the house. <laughs> I, just, I just came up with that one. You like it? What? Jeffrey Dahmer did. He said it killed. And I mean, if anybody should know, Anyways, those are my thoughts on this week's story. Keep in mind it was written in 1967, the tail end of the civil rights movement, and I'm not writing off that this story is directly addressing the way we sometimes approach race, gender equality, and such. I think that's pretty clear. I'm not interested so much right this second in that conversation. I think I can find plenty of people on YouTube screaming at each other about that. I think what Frederick Pohl's interested in here, particularly after reading his afterword, is how we have those conversations. The same conversations, again and again. I mean, it's easy to think that the age we live in, this age, is where everything's really happening. But you look back at a lot of classic SF and fantasy 
see and what they were commenting on between the lines, and you realize there's not a million new things going on under the sun here on Earth. That's pre-Copernicus kind of thinking there. The millions of things really going on are in the opposite direction. Are there new ways to talk about it? Sure. That's, I think, what good comedy and good SF often tries to do. Anyways, on to our 100 character story winner this week by Eric Marsh. 100 characters, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles, and we host a weekly contest in our forums at forums.travelcast.org in the twabble section. Go there, write one, you might be next week's winner, where we post the winners early each week on our Twitter feed, at Drabblecast. That's where you can find the Drabblecast on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Drabblecast. Here we go. Words have meanings, and meanings are important. It's not good enough to just tell robot slaves, create a better world. Congrats, longtime listener Eric Marsh. That was a beautiful one. And words do indeed have meaning. As do images. And on that note, special thanks to our episode artist this week, Justin Eisenbar. Justin's an illustrator living in Denver, Colorado. He likes to paint monsters and fantasy scenes, sometimes even at the same time. Follow him at eisenbossillustration.com. And that's our show this week, folks. Remember that Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share us with everybody you know, and even those you don't know, because that's totally cool. Write us a review on iTunes or blog about us. Spread the weird. The Drabblecast is brought to you with 100% listener support. Think about that. It's a pretty big deal. We pay our authors the professional SFWA rate of six cents per word for original fiction. We pay our episode artists, our voice actors, our production people, and it's all because of the support of listeners like you. If you had a good time this afternoon with us, consider donating to the Drabblecast any amount, one time, or an automated monthly subscription. You can do so at a $10 a month level, which gives you access to Drabblecast BC sides, which is an extra episode a month, essentially. And good stuff, I promise you. Check it out, and help support your favorite podcast. Our program this week was brought to you by Bo Kyer, Tom Baker, Chen Fisher, Samantha Henderson, Zimmerman Bledsoe, a strange small marsupial with six legs brought in by your cat, Sandra O'Dell, Jason Smith, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, everybody knows that one. Mutters these words to his lackey When it comes, put this in his butt Drop him off a few miles out of Bridgedale And we'll see if he keeps his mouth shut We then handed over Rutabaga Long discolored and dry